The boy. I wish I couldn't see spirits. The ability comes from my mother's side of the family. From my great-grandmother down to my uncle, every living maternal relative has some sort of connection to the other side. Because of this, I grew up around pendulums and the like. The prayers mom taught me were less about religious practice than a tool for keeping unwanted spirits at bay. In hindsight, I wish I'd have paid more attention. The primary school I attended at age 10 was very traditional. Daily prayers, uniforms, and black leather shoes students were loath to polish had been an integral part of the routine for generations. To put into perspective how old this school is, it was founded years before English was ever so much as uttered in my country. An English class wasn't even added to the curriculum until I'd reached fourth grade. I remember because that was our focus this particular day. Our homeroom teacher, Mrs. Hofstra, was explaining that the new English teacher would be around soon to interview and enlist the most promising students for the program. I was excited. I loved reading. My English was way more advanced than most of the other kids in my grade. Wanting to make a good impression, I decided to use the restroom before the English teacher arrived. I dutifully raised my hand and recited for Mrs. Hofstra the long-winded spiel we'd been taught to ask for permission. I remember skipping down the stairs en route to the bathroom. I was excited. Also, the hallways were empty. There were no teachers around to scold me. I remember reaching the bottom of the staircase into Gallery Hall, a long corridor filled with trophies, photos, certificates, and neatly pinned versions of our school uniform through history. Because I'd passed these uniforms countless times, I recognized what the boy was wearing. I stopped dead in my tracks. He was older than me, and despite facing the display cases, had to have seen me skipping. Odds were that he'd report my misconduct to the headmaster. I stood at attention. Moments passed. A strange, deathly silence hung between us. I realized the boy was wearing an outdated uniform, but it didn't occur to me what that could mean or that I was entitled to know why. Questioning one's betters is frowned upon in traditional cultures. He turned his head to face me. I can picture it vividly even now. His hair was dirty blonde, and though his eyes accentuated the sly, mischievous grin common to all school children when adults aren't present, they didn't possess the same sparkle. My blood ran cold. The smile was too wide. Not quite ear to ear, but just broad enough to seem off. I felt threatened. Somehow the presence of this boy put my fight-or-flight response on high alert. I was an animal, my senses attuned to some creeping predatory threat waiting in ambush. I reacted the way any prey would react. I turned and bolted back up the stairs. I got to class without incident. It was only at the next day's recess that I felt confident enough to go back to that hallway and examine the photograph the boy had been standing in front of. I recognized his face among the students pictured, scribbled down his information, and cross-referenced it with the school records kept in the library. By this point, ghost was my prevailing theory. Finding his name, I went straight to the foyer, relieved to see that the secretary on duty was one who had a soft spot for me. I asked about the boy, gauging whether or not he was dead as best as a 10-year-old could. The secretary gave me an odd look and shook her head. The boy, she said, was married with children and most definitely still among the living. I don't know what that thing might have been or what it wanted, but I'm sure it's still there. 
Though afterwards I avoided being in that corridor alone on principle, the few times it couldn't be helped, I always felt watched. To this day, when walking on school grounds, if I happen to pass by the tower window looking into Gallery Hall, my pace instinctively quickens. I think I start it like that now whenever we finish clapping. I go, woo! <laughs> is your inner uh, party girl coming out whenever we start this? It is, it is. Mine does too, so uh, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. <laughs> and I'm Michael Tatum, and this is Ghoul Intentions. Yes. Ah, yes, it yeah. is. Ghoul Intentions. We're back after a week hiatus because, you know, my birthday. It was your birthday, and it was Memorial Day. It was. It was. And we wanted to give Matt time off and also ourselves time off. <laughs> <laughs> Which worked out for the best, because then we got to do uh, more research for this week's episode. Yes. So this week's well, episode we represents two weeks' worth of research, not That's just right. one. <laughs> we were struggling a little bit. Uh, we had decided we wanted to go Hollywood because we've had requests. And so yeah. uh, we found a couple of things, but they just always, they were leading to dead end after dead end. Yeah, a lot. Of, turns, out, then, turns out a lot yeah. of blind alleys in Hollywood, you guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> people are real dramatic about their spaces and they don't, they don't have any proof. And go figure, there are a lot of actors there. Uh, <laughs> um, um, we can say that because we are actors. We are actors, but we're not Hollywood. <laughs> so uh, a shout out to Emily Neves, who read The Cold Open yes. uh, this week. Yeah, it's first fucking and awesome. Emily, you're amazing. So and we good. love you. Thank you're you, so good. You. Such a spooky story, which came from uh, one of our listeners named, I'm probably going to butcher this name, so please forgive me, Aristeus? A-R-I-S-T-A-E-U-S. I want it Aristeus. to be Aristeus. I feel like it's Aristeus. Not just because I want to be right, but because I feel like Aristeus is a beautiful name. But if it's if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, feel free to correct me. I'm sorry. But thank you for that story. That was really good. Yeah, great really, story. Really chilling. Emily, and Emily, lovely done. Emily's been so supportive of us she from the very beginning. Has. So I'm really glad we got her in on it. Emily um, likes a good fantastic. ghost story, so that's you know, yeah. that's also helpful. So she's yes. one of us. One of she us. Is. One of us. That's right. Um, um, check her out. She's also on Twitter mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Instagram, I believe. Yes. Emily Neves. E-M-I-L-Y-N-E-E-V-E-S. Yes. Neves. Yes. Okay. Emily Neves. So, I just want to say the name ghostily. So in our so in uh, our have, in our research for yes. or in our in our attempt to find some good Hollywood ghost stories, which floundered yeah. because God damn it, it's just hard to find. I I you, you should see some of the texts Jamie and I said back and forth when we were like setting off, mm-hmm. being like, "Cool, you go and do this part of Hollywood. I'll do this part." And we'd come back, we're like, "There's nothing here. God damn it, this is bullshit. It's all this bullshit. Is fucking bullshit." And There's we didn't no want to do an actually. We kept coming up with hashtag actuallys for both of us, and that didn't feel rewarding. Yeah. And especially because in, <laughs> in in the case of a lot of the ones we found, that I, I don't want to say which because there are still some genuine hauntings in Hollywood mm-hmm. that we will explore yeah. at a later date. But um, the actuallys weren't even that fun. So I was like, mm-hmm. fuck, we needed something. And it just so happens we found the perfect antidote. <laughs> we did. In who are we talking about today, Jamie? Well, it started off as I have wanted to do this for a little while. Um, and it's from watching an old uh, celebrity ghost stories from years ago, and I yes, knew that um, people had stayed in this house 
And Beverly D'Angelo had bought it from Dan Aykroyd. And she mentioned that it's the house that inspired Ghostbusters. Uh And I was like, what? And so I'd always wanted to look into that a little bit more. And as I was looking into it, I realized... Wow, Dan Aykroyd has a lot of history with the paranormal. <laughs> yes, amongst he does. other things. And I was like, what if we share this story? Yeah. So Michael took over um the before the house, the pre-house. Yes. The sort of the sort Aykroyd's. of uh, an Aykroyd family history with ghosts and, yes. and other paranormal shit. And then Jamie's gonna talk about the, the house, house that inspired Ghostbusters. Yes, yes. Amongst other things, it didn't. Yeah. Uh, it didn't inspire it alone. Right, um, right. No, but as our we'll title learn. is definitely inspired by Ghostbusters. <laughs> yes, uh, it's "We're Ready to Believe You," mm-hmm. which is from the commercial that they have. Yes, which is a really yeah. funny. That's incidentally one of We're the funniest ready to moments. You. In, We're ready to believe you. And yeah. the, they point the finger. <laughs> it's one of my favorite, like. It's one of my favorite tongue-in-cheek references to low-budget commercials ever because I don't know if you know this about yeah. me or not, Jamie, but I I have a, a thing for, like, weird, like, found footage videos. So I love, like, news bloopers and, and things like that. But I also absolutely love cheap, terribly made, locally produced commercials. Um, yeah. They are some of my, wherever they're from, as long as they're just like local in the town and like made on a home video recorder by someone's nephew. <laughs> and like <laughs> one of my favorite examples, but it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> is it was, a, it was a furniture store ad I saw years ago, which this is what kicked off my obsession with bad commercials. It was like a Lincoln's Day sale. And it's just, you know, it's the camera's pan, a really cheap camera is panning through aisles upon aisles of like furniture. And in the middle, there's like a little computer desk and a guy dressed up in a really shitty Abraham Lincoln costume with the stovetop pipe and the fucking mm-hmm. beard that couldn't be phonier uh, is like typing away at a computer and like the narrator is like, Mr. President, will you be going to the Lincoln's Day sale at such and such furniture store? And the guy turns to the camera and says, what? And miss the play? And <laughs> I know what you're talking about. It's, such a, yes. it's so awful, but it's so funny <laughs> and I can't. So I have a thing for like... <laughs> I have a thing for, I mean, I we, I almost want to branch off into a podcast strictly dedicated to bad commercials, but honestly, because that's a whole other graveyard. But anyway. <laughs> graveyard. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, and so, there's a lot, I'm sure, Jamie, you remember a lot of the local commercials that used to come on in Oklahoma. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, God. There was, oh, our biggest one is, um, and still... If you're in Oklahoma during Christmas and you're from Oklahoma, uh, especially the city, you'll know um, jewelry is the gift to give will trigger you. <laughs> and you won't be able to stop singing that song. Here- I had someone I was talking about at a convention, and I was like, if you ask them, the audience, to sing this song for a jewelry store, uh, they will sing the whole song. And sure enough, it happened. And they're like, do you know this song? And I was like, they know this song. I was like, sing it, y'all. And the whole room sang it. It was amazing. I'm now completely being like, uh, there's like, I'm just being inundated by all these jingles that I remember growing up with watching local television. And like, there are some like, uh, 
R.A. Gabriel, the lawyer who sends flowers. And they turned it into like a little jingle, like the lawyer who sends flowers. And then later, like, <laughs> I guess he stopped sending flowers, but they kept the jingle. So it'd be like, call R.A. Gabriel. And I was like, oh, he doesn't send flowers anymore. Oh, yeah. He's like, you guys got to change <laughs> He's that. He's like, that shit. Yeah, it's too expensive. Too much I'll overhead. I'll send la la la's, but I'm not going any farther than that. <laughs> flowers are La la la's only cost the amount, only cost a session fee. Um, <laughs> but, and then there's, uh, there was Southtown Ford. Uh, if you grew up around here in Dallas, like you heard it all the time because they had a little jingle. Southtown Ford, South on 35, Allsbury Exit, or Fort Worth. And then the little girl at the end going, open Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Then Rick Stacy, yeah, who's like, if you're not trading with me, you're burning money. And he's actually like burning money on the on camera. And I'm like, pretty sure that's illegal, but it's certainly yeah, wasteful. I don't think that's... But whatever. Um, <laughs> 12, 12, Luke 12. <laughs> I'm just sorry. <laughs> this is when I finally get dementia, because it's going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to be a very lively performer who does nothing but renditions of the commercials I remember as a child. I'm right. just going to be the old man in a wheelchair being like, <laughs> like remembering the star telegram phone number. Like it's, oh, it's fucking crazy. Right. Yeah. You just think musically, even in jingles. All of which to say, that's why that moment in Ghostbusters is oh, right. it, it's it so, it's so true. That's right. That's right. So since you have the background of the Ackroyds, do you want to start? And I'm, can you sing it all in jingle I form? might as well. Yes. No, God. <laughs> this is 30 pages of research. I didn't, I'm not prepared. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, okay. full disclosure, Dan Aykroyd is one of my personal heroes, so I kind of went off on the deep end doing this research because um, I just fucking love everything about the man and what he's done. And his family seems really fucking cool. They're kind of like a... They're a cross between, like, the Munsters... <laughs> <laughs> they are. And and like the Beverly Hillbillies. I, I just, I don't yeah. know. I don't know how to describe them. I, I'm sure that's. But I, like I Canadian Hillbillies. Yeah. So like, so just normal Americans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but so there's a lot of things I didn't know about the family until I started digging into his great grandfather and his father and brother. Um, so just a heads up. Uh, both Dan Aykroyd's father and brother are named Peter, so I will try to distinguish between the two where I can. But if you're confused, uh, don't worry. It seems like the family wants you to be. <laughs> they went uh, out of their way to do it, so let them have this one. <laughs> so let's let's dive into the Aykroyd family history as best. Uh, now my I'm sources. I'm so excited. I have to say, I'm so excited to hear this because. When I was doing research on the house, I was coming across a lot of this stuff, yeah. and I was thinking, God, I need to get into this. Uh, but I never really dove in, so well, I know little bits and pieces. I can't wait to hear the rest of well, it. Well, it turns out, for those of you that would like a little reading recommendation, uh, most of this information comes from a book written by Dan Aykroyd's father, Peter Aykroyd, mm -hmm. uh, that he wrote in his retirement based on the journals of his uh, grandfather, Dan's great-grandfather, Samuel Aykroyd, who we'll get into. And the book is entitled A History of Ghosts which I will quote extensively from, and which is incidentally a really good read. It's yeah. hard It's hard when reading it not to hear the tone of Dan Aykroyd's character <laughs> in Ghostbusters. Because right? yeah. it has that kind of, I'm not going to say dry, but that very sober, almost clinical attention to detail and like very carefully parsing words so nothing sounds too out there, even though there, he's discussing stuff that is very out there. Anyway, let's dive in. So, uh... 
I don't think it's unfair to call Dan Aykroyd eccentric. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think that's... And of course, I'm aware that referring to any Hollywood hotshot as a little peculiar is an exercise in stating the obvious, but even among the cast of quirky irregulars that have peopled the entertainment industry since its beginning, old Danny Boy stands out. Um, Not only was his the creative vision behind cult classics like Blues Brothers and 1984's Ghostbusters, the wily Canadian and... Let's not forget Dragnet. (laughs) <laughs> oh, at Dragnet and Dr. Detroit and so many others. Uh, I could just unfurl a scroll and it would keep on going. The wily Canadian and SNL alum and also Second City alum doesn't bat an eye when discussing the paranormal. He's seen UFOs. Mm-hmm. He's seen ghosts. He talks about them in a very... Uh, if you ever see him in interview, he's one of the most believable witnesses of these things I've ever encountered because he's like, just, yeah, of course I saw him. Um, and incidentally, he doesn't shy away from talking about his unorthodox pedigree because great-granddaddy Aykroyd, you see, was a leading movement in the spiritualist, uh, was a leading figure, rather, in the spiritualist, <laughs> was, a lead, Ooh, a leading was a leading movement in the spiritualist figure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so much for sounding smart, Tatum. Uh, great, great, great oh, granddaddy was a leading figure in the spiritualist movement in Canada in the uh, early part of the 20th century and regularly hosted seances in the family home, which was a farmhouse in Ontario, uh, which, as far as I know, is still in the family. But before we get into all that... Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Before yeah. we get into all that, I, I want to kind of preface this with a personal anecdote as to why <laughs> Dan Aykroyd is one of my heroes. Now, it's no secret, as Jamie can tell you, that I have long had very strange tastes in film. Um, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, the weirder, the more unclassifiable, and more contentious among critics and audiences, the better. And I can trace this contrarian... <laughs> tendency to, it it has an origin story. (laughs) So during my sophomore year of high school, back in the Neolithic era, um, (laughs) I earned extra credit writing reviews and op-ed pieces for the school newspaper, which was called the Lion's Mane, because our our mascot was, guess what, a lion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, the Mm -hmm. editor tended to be baffled by my style, and to be fair, I was fucking dreadful, but... She found she found that my sort of literary idiosyncrasies would sort themselves out if the subject was film. So she tossed a booklet of free movie passes my way, declared a deadline, sent me marching into the trenches. And my first assignment was to review the film Nothing But Trouble, a now little-remembered mm. flop starring Chevy Chase, Demi Moore, the late great John Candy, and Aykroyd himself, who also wrote and directed. Following a troubled production history and nearly a year's worth of release delays, nothing but trouble tanked hard. I mean, grossing barely a third of its budget before being jettisoned to home video where it fared little better and vanished altogether not long after. Most stores had only a single copy in stock, and even then only for a little while. And by the time I was in college, you were lucky to find one languishing in the bottom of a bargain bin at, say, Walmart. Um, I didn't dig up a copy again until 2012. Ooh. All the while, it's in, 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 well, excuse me, while it's not hard to see why the movie failed, it's an enormously difficult film to write about effectively, especially for a 15 year old kid writing for a school newspaper, because, <laughs> like its creator, it's just so damn weird. Um, let me try to sum up just so we kind of know who we're dealing with. Chevy Chase and Demi Moore play a mismatched pair of New York yuppies on a road trip. They run a stop sign in some godforsaken Jersey backwater and wind up fighting for their lives in a dead 
Deadly Fun House, owned and operated by the batshit crazy town judge, who happens to be a 106-year-old homicidal maniac with a flair for engineering and a dick for a nose. I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> John Candy plays dual roles as both the kindly town sheriff and judge's grandson, also his mute colossus of a sister. It's true. Um, and right. Dan Aykroyd in drag is just worth the price of admission alone. Aykroyd himself does double duty on screen as both the villainous judge and a sweaty man baby who putters around half naked in the family junkyard. <laughs> <laughs> in, in one scene, Daniel Baldwin, of all people, appears what? as a drug dealer who gets hauled off in a, on a speeding charge, uh, mouths off, and is summarily sentenced, to, along with his coked-up entourage, to ride the Mr. Bone Stripper, a gruesome handmade roller coaster that does precisely as advertised. Um, so they go before the judge, and he's like, oh, you're dead, and he, like, you know, punches a button, and off they go through this fucking grinder. Um uh, also, Jamie, Flash in the Pan rap group Digital Underground also makes a what? cameo. <laughs> what? <laughs> but you'll be happy to know the judge sets them free. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, and did I mention, this is all a comedy. <laughs> and not only yeah. that, it's a comedy inspired by the movie Hellraiser. <laughs> True fact. So Dan took his brother. It's like, he, it's like he saw movies and he's like, all right, I like this, but. What if it was funny? Well, okay. <laughs> well, here's like, he funny that. you should mention that. So so Dan took his brother Peter, uh, uh, Peter Jonathan is his brother's full name, uh, to see the 1987 cult classic when Peter was recovering from a broken rib and preferred to watch something that wouldn't make him laugh. Uh, Hellraiser proved an ill-fated choice in this regard. <laughs> the audience was so tickled by what they were seeing on screen. And it, it Hellraiser is a funny movie. Without, it doesn't intend to be, but it's hilarious. Um, that what should have had them shielding their eyes had them clutching their sides with full-throated guffaws. And so Peter, after he recovered, <laughs> Dan was so inspired by this experience that he decided to dash out a screenplay based on his own experience in a rural speed trap back in the late 70s. And he strove to recreate that same weird Hellraiser magic. You know, crazy as all this sounds, I can't stress enough that I'm only scratching the surface of just what a chaos lord nothing but trouble really is. Critics <laughs> wiped their asses with it. Audiences <laughs> shunned it. When I saw it, my dad and I were the only two people in the theater. My, I wasn't old enough to drive, so dad had to come with me, poor bastard. And, but I absolutely fucking loved it. My review in the school newspaper was glowing. I sung praises to its unabashed weirdness, its bizarre attention to detail, the sheer audacity of Ackroyd to make something like this within the studio system. Now, Dad, of course, thought I had a screw loose. He was like, it's one of the worst pieces of shit I've ever seen. And I was at, <laughs> I was at pains to defend my tastes because objectively, it's not a good movie. I'll, I'll, I'll concede that. Chevy Chase's disdain, for example, for the project is palpable in every fucking frame. Uh, the tone is kind of all over the map. And even the name is an afterthought. The original title was Vulcanvania after the town in which the story takes place. But the studio discarded it in horror for something more marketable. <laughs> Uh, I caught a lot of flack for enjoying Nothing But Trouble, and even years later when I stumbled upon a tattered DVD copy by accident, the friends I showed it to forbade me from spearheading movie night ever again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and these were cinema hipsters who could, like, make a drinking game out of paint your fucking wagon, right? So, as it turns <laughs> out, Dan Aykroyd's first and to date, only time in the director's chair was my first time being completely and utterly alone, in my opinion, of a film. <laughs> 
But goddammit, I'm sticking to my guns. Something about this inexplicable, forgotten muddle of a horror comedy still gets me. Damned if I know why. Maybe it's the elaborate production design. Maybe it's the earnest dedication to such a harebrained premise. Maybe it's the fact that just about everyone associated with the movie, except for Chevy Chase himself, had an absolute ball making it. Plagued as the production was, the cast and Chevy crew... Chase doesn't really have a lot of fun with most things. He doesn't seem does to, he? does he? Doesn't It doesn't he's seem kind to. Of, and that's he, weird, he's because kind of he a, and I have the same birthday. Well, I guess, but not the same constitution. That's uh, right. Well, it's different <clears throat> years, and that means different things. Right. So. All the cast and crew enjoyed themselves <laughs> immensely on this project, and even Dan Aykroyd himself, who was really wearing a lot of hats and stressed as fuck. Uh, and to this day, all of them exalt Aykroyd's ability as a director, and honestly, he sounds like the kind of person we would fucking love to work with. Dan, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because he's definitely listening to this podcast. He might be. He appeared as a guest on <laughs> last podcast on the left once and gave a really great interview fairly recently actually so it's possible jamie let it's me dream anything's, anything's possible Michael. if if any of you want to learn more <laughs> about the strange and tangled history of this bizarre quote-unquote masterpiece i gladly point you to the youtube channel good bad flicks their little mini doc on nothing but trouble is a gem and incidentally for those of you intrepid enough to watch the actual movie for yourselves don't bother telling me you hate it you will but you're not going to change my mind <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this was a longer preface than I wanted. <laughs> no, it's but, great. But what better way to kick off a discussion about such a unique outside-the-box personality and the family he hails from? I mean, granted, Ackroyd is strange enough that I could have started anywhere, like his writing process for Blues Brothers, which, according to legend, involved a Kerouac-style odyssey across the backroads of America uh, and culminated in a thousand-page first draft. Uh, but... What would you expect what? from a guy whose great-grandfather routinely talked to dead people? In his, in his book, A History of Ghosts, Peter Aykroyd, Dan's father, writes, quote, My brother Maurice Jr. and I set in on many of the seances, and in a quiet way, we felt that we were privileged to be part of something larger than ourselves. Because, uh, but because spiritualism has little dogma, no liturgy, and no consistent public image and easily accessible expression, no one knew of this influence upon our lives. It was not until we were young adults that other influences came to bear and settled for us some of the great questions of life. Uh, in my sons, Dan and Peter, jo uh, Peter Jonathan, the shadow lengthened dramatically, and in the electronic age, it spread to all corners of the planet. In the fifth generation, the penumbra is there, but much weaker. All dynasties eventually fade away, and so it is with family traditions. That brings me to this book. Peter's grandfather, Dr. Samuel Augustus Aykroyd, DDS, hailed from stock very much in love with history, evidenced by the fact that the name Augustus wasn't popular even for 1855, the year he was born. <laughs> he was the oldest of 14 siblings. Samuel grew up in Storrington, a rural township 20 miles north of Kingston, Ontario. Following a brief stint in his 20s as a school teacher, during which he became acquainted with science, a discipline only just then being added to the curriculum, Samuel decided to enroll in the University of Toronto's Royal College of Dental Surgeons, and graduating in 1891. Anesthesi anesthesiology was very much in its infancy back in those days, a popular means of pain management just gaining traction among medical professionals, as Dr. Aykroyd was beginning his practice, was hypnotism, or as it was known in those days, mesmerism. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. <clears throat> He was a thinking man, writes Peter, a man who approached all subjects in his sphere of interest with the sobriety and seriousness that one would expect from a professional. Hypnotism was probably one of the things that sparked Dr. A's interest in a relatively new phenomenon, 
called spiritualism. Now, for anyone familiar with the term, spiritualism conjures up everything from table wrapping to blobs of ectoplasm, but fails to outline anything like a unified field theory of ghosts. Its connotations started out modestly enough, focusing on survival after death and communication with spirits, but grew to include all kinds of paranormal phenomenon, psychic ability, clairvoyance, astral projection, prophecy, telekinesis, channeling, pretty much any and everything that cast doubt uh, on the prevailing prevailing Newtonian model of the universe at that point. Peter Ackroyd's- Anything supernatural. Anything supernatural. Uh, yeah. Peter Ackroyd's preferred definition of spiritualism is, quote, the belief that the departed spirits communicate with and show themselves to the living, end quote, though he particularly means through mediums. Now, uh, through spiritualism, Dr. Ackroyd became familiar with the writings of 18th century scientist and mystic Immanuel Swedenborg, whose abilities impressed even Immanuel Kant, one of the most influential thinkers of all time. Now, we Swedenborg. will. <clears throat> Swedenborg. Uh, we shall have to do an episode on him because he was a fascinating fellow. But Swedenborg's. I theories... would like that because I just like to say that name. I Swedenborg. Say Swedenborg. Um, he was really just a class act, too. Swedenborg's theories of the afterlife are really kind of beyond the scope of this discussion today. But suffice it to say, they dovetailed very nicely with Dr. Aykroyd's beliefs as a democratic socialist. Fascinated by the implications of Swedenborg's thought as filtered through the lens of spiritualism, its 19th century offshoot, Dr. Aykroyd aligned himself to the movement heartily and stood alongside prominent public figures like Sir Arthur, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to drum up public support for science-based paranormal research. For 30 years, he held seances in his home, filling journal after journal with characteristically haphazard doctor's handwriting, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but giving us a positively clinical level of detail. Uh, side, note, side note for those of you that don't know, seance is a French word meaning sitting or showing and was co-opted by the spiritualists in the late 19th century to describe a group of people coming together with the express purpose of talking with spirits. Uh, though his grandson, Dan's father, Peter, witnessed quite a few of these seances himself at the family farmhouse when he was a child, uh, which fostered in him the ironclad certainty that the phenomenon was real, it was the discovery of Dr. Aykroyd's journals in a basement some 50 years later that prompted Peter to write A History of Ghosts. I highly recommend the book. Uh, it was published in 2010, and it isn't just a celebration of great-grandpa Aykroyd's lifelong hobby. It's also a very soberly written and deeply humanist survey of spiritualism's roots and influences on the course of of modern history. Which I think is great because we don't get that. That gets lost with all of the the evidence and stuff of things being shams or things yeah, being yeah, frauds. Yeah. And we, like, and you know, we'll, we we hear that and we don't hear the yes, good we stuff don't hear some, the stuff and we, that made people believe. And we also don't really understand or it's not discussed in popular culture how spiritualism aligned itself to and and um, helped the women's lib movement, for example, uh, the, I mean, it's, it's fucking, it's a fascinating history. Uh, and, uh, the book is really, really good. Uh, mm -hmm. da -da -da -da. Peter himself had been allowed to participate in grandpa's basement seances from about age seven when he was discovered spying on them from his hiding place on the stairs and cordially asked by the medium to join. Uh, he describes like it. it, he describes it in the book as like a, one of the, the boards creaking under his foot and the medium going, would the young gentleman like to join us? <laughs> um, the medium, an intense young man named Walter, whose casual dress always stood in contrast to the formal black attire of Dr. Aykroyd's guests, would fall into a trance. 
Thus would begin an intense session of automatic writing in which the spirits took control of Walter's hand and hastily scribbled messages on a blackboard. Sometimes there'd be a stack of paper that he'd write on and someone, Dr. Aykroyd, would be the one pulling the paper out from under it whenever he filled something. And if you've ever seen spirit writing, um, it's really interesting. There's a there's a scene in the movie The Changeling, uh, the older movie with George C. Scott about a haunted house, where they do a seance, and it's one of the best representations of how a spiritualist seance actually went. And the medium is doing automatic writing. She's just scribbling onto a piece of paper, like while in a trance. And every now and again, her hand will just kind of dig words into the paper, and then the 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 doctor uh, that's with her is like having to constantly replenish the paper. It's it's really fun and good. It's a great suspenseful scene, but. Incidentally, a great representation of how spiritualist uh, seances went. Now, again, the movie is called The Changeling, and it stars George C. Scott, one of the best haunted house films I've ever seen. Uh, nice. Have you ever have you ever gone to a psychic that does channeling? I, I have never done it. I've I've seen video of it doing. It's really interesting, but I've never I've never seen it done. I after doing this research, I really want to finally, if I can find one. I don't know where to find them. I went to one. They do have some locally. I went to one in New Mexico once, mm. and it was fascinating because she would just scribble, and and then as things came, she would just write. But most of the time, she was just she had like a scribbling spot, mm. mm-hmm. and then she'd write and write and write. But she was more aware of her surroundings. It's not yeah. like you know, she was overtaken and they were writing through her. She was writing what she was hearing yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So it was a little that, bit different. Yeah, sometimes. And Walter, the medium we're talking about here, his experiences, his trances were pretty fucking intense, but we'll kind of get into that. Uh, yeah. One of the other things that would frequently happen at these seances is that a small trumpet or like a toy horn would be supplied that allowed the spirits to uh, phonate. Uh, the trumpet would float through the air quite literally and strange distant voices would echo from its mouth. Oh, weird. Um, that was also a typical feature of, of spiritualist practice. Uh, but even more dramatically, ectoplasm would sometimes gush from Walter's body and assume vague human shapes. Although this Ew. last this last phenomenon was relatively rare. The guests were always enthralled, as seances required a great deal of concentration from all the sitters involved, but Dr. Aykroyd and his retinue were measured in their response. These uncanny displays were such a common occurrence to dedicated spiritualists that shock and awe were seldom warranted. Imagine, <laughs> imagine things like levitating toy horns that talk and vaporous beings being mundane. But, you know... Right. Meanwhile, we're like, but footsteps. We heard footsteps. <laughs> but he heard... But <laughs> Is that a shadow person? Um, One day, and I love this little anecdote, one day Peter's four-year-old brother Maurice Jr. burst into the room in the middle of Walter's trance. A tin horn through which some departed loved one had been addressing the group crashed to the floor with a clang. Contact was broken. Try though they might to reopen the channel, the spirit simply wouldn't be tempted and the seance had to end prematurely. From that point onward, the Ackroyd children were only allowed to attend Grandpa's soirees if they could showcase sufficient restraint in the presence of the dead. (laughs) Gotta raise him right. Uh, Walter, the medium, had first approached Dr. Aykroyd on the street back in 1917 when he was just a 27-year-old machinist for Kingston Locomotive. The young man told uh, Dr. Aykroyd he was a medium, or pretty sure he was a medium at any rate, and that he needed guidance in order to fine hone his skills. The good doctor obliged, introducing Walter to an experienced medium, medium, and, and more or less kind of adopted him in the process. See, as a child, whenever Walter had tried to share his visions with family members, his deeply religious father would beat the ever living shit out of him. So needless to say, he was great grateful for Dr. Aykroyd's patronage. At the time of being taken under Aykroyd's wing, Walter had only a common public school education and read mainly pulp magazines. His favorite, and I love this detail, 
the shadow. Uh, because of fucking course. Uh, yeah. But his awareness of spiritualist literature was really sparse, to say the least. Peter Ackroyd writes, Walter's early seance experiences as a medium were extremely unpleasant for him. For the first 20 minutes or so, he would see uh, various spirits and describe them, but the descriptions were usually accompanied by physical side effects, such as pains and aches and the sensation of having crushed or broken bones, which the sitters assumed represented the diseases or accidents of the spirits just before or at the time of their passing. Following this, Walter assumed a passive state that normally lasted for about an hour and a half, during which he was entranced and completely unaware of his surroundings. Uh, end quote. Walter attracted a group of regulars from the spirit world. One of them, uh, Li Long, claimed to have lived during the Ming Dynasty. Another called himself Blue Light and eventually fessed up to having been an ancient Egyptian prince. There was also an Irishman named Mike Wallen, uh, and three native spirits listed in Dr. Aykroyd's journals as Black Hawk, Broken Arrow, and Black Feather. Now, hard as these seances were on Walter's physical well-being, Dr. Aykroyd and his fellow spiritualists nevertheless pushed the young man to, to persevere. Aykroyd's journals record no less than 80 seances between 1921 and 1933, and what began as Walter, wow. uh, as Walter offering straightforward descriptions of the deceased gradually grew to include table wrappings and disembodied voices. And after a lengthy period of false starts, at long last, the spirits began to manifest in physical form, which was kind of the holy grail for spiritualists. They wanted, like, they right. wanted something measurable. Um, the doctor gives us an example of these manifestations in his journals. Quote, a number of lights appeared in different parts of the room and in the vicinity of some of the sitters. Some of these lights were small and some were quite large. One light in considerable size seemed to be in a square frame with a dark bar across it. These lights would come and go, some lasting for quite a space of time and some only a second or two. They seemed to be self-contained in that they didn't light up the room or make it perceptibly brighter. There was no possibility of these lights being produced by artificial means or of their coming into the room from an outside source. All members of the circle were perfectly sure of this by examination and experiments. Nothing like them could be produced in the room where we sat, and uh, so we concluded they must have been of spirit origin. Exhilarating though these manifestations may seem, they were nonetheless fleeting and unquantifiable. As a man of science, Dr. Aykroyd hungered for something that could be put under the microscope. Walter's regular spirit guides, or controls as they were called in the Argo, encouraged the group to persist. They were on the verge of a profound physical manifestations whose implications would rock the scientific community. It may take years, the spirits told them, but these seances would make history. In addition to these messages of encouragement from the spirit world, blue light cropped up after a lengthy absence and began making dire prophecies. Dr. Aykroyd believed blue light predicted an earthquake that hit Nicaragua on March 31st, 1931, killing 2,000 people. Uh, though not mm. all of his predictions came true, blue light seems to have foretold, among other things, the coming of World War II, and interestingly enough, the exact date the United States moved off the gold standard. Ooh. That's a weird That's one. Uh, yeah. In one seance, a particularly brusque spirit made himself known. Just so happened to be the ghost of Dr. Aykroyd's great-grandfather, Samuel, who he was named after, <laughs> and who had <laughs> shoveled off the mortal coil some hundred years prior. He told them he was trying his damnedest to manifest physically, and indeed, a handful of sensitive sitters claimed they could make out a distinct face in their mind's eye, uh, and even went so far as to describe his characteristic waistcoat. But again, nothing definitive appeared. A later seance proved even more dramatic. Walter, in his customary trance, walked to one of the sitters and put both hands on his shoulders. Within moments, the sitter felt strong vibrations, as if he were holding an electric battery, he said. 
Dense waves of white light took shape in front of him, flowing up and down in concentric rings with a dark band running down the center. Another sitter could just make out the outlines of a face. These rings, according to Dr. Aykroyd, were comprised of ectoplasm, the ethereal substance by which spirits assume form in the physical plane. Its production from a mortal body causes the sitter immense pain, and for these reasons, the spirits explained, the manifestations had to be limited to brief glimpses because they were fearful of causing injury to the living. Uh, Peter Aykroyd goes on to write in the book, ectoplasm has never been proven to exist beyond the reports of witnesses and photos that have been taken of it. The substance does not appear to be subject to physical capture and analysis. It can be seen in darkness or semi-darkness, but has never been seen in full light. It has no substance, yet it has a form which usually takes the shape of the spiritual entities who, at least according to scholar Stan McMullen, are making purposeful attempts to contact the living. Now, if the concept of ectoplasm sounds familiar to you, it's probably because it features prominently in Ghostbusters, yes, which, it of, does. which of course Dan Aykroyd wrote. That's right. He didn't just make slime up. The term wasn't generally known outside of spiritualist circles before the 1984 film. The first known reference comes from Swedenborg in 1744, who coined the term uh, idioplasm to describe the otherworldly goo. But ectoplasm became a household word by way of Dan Aykroyd's very own family history. Isn't that fucking cool? That's so cool. After many failed attempts over the years to produce a lasting manifestation from the spirit world, some of Dr. Aykroyd's acolytes began to taper off. The regular sitters who remained took comfort in the words of renowned spiritualist Alfred Russell Wallace, who wrote, quote, It is an indubitable fact that the manifestations which take place at seances depend more upon the nature, disposition, and state of mind of those presents than on the physical development of any medium, and that where incredulity and especially scoffing is felt, the spirits will not or cannot manifest themselves. In his journals, Dr. Aykroyd muses whether among his entourage motives were uniformly pure. Could it be someone uh, had secret, had been, cons- had been, blah, blah. let me begin again. Could someone, <laughs> could it be that someone had been secretly contemptuous of the proceedings all along, merely feigning belief so as to be included in what for them was an exercise in schadenfreude? Might someone else have been struggling with belief and simply been in denial about it? As with any control experiment, it's difficult to guarantee against cross-contamination, especially when mental states are part of what has to be considered. Uh, Of course, it must be said, the excruciatingly specific circumstances under which the spirits preferred to operate tended to create an atmosphere ripe for fraud. Light was thought to destroy ectoplasm, so seances were held in the dark. And it's no surprise skeptics had such a field day unraveling believers. But while the spiritualist movement had its share of humbugs and hucksters, what's not generally discussed today is the lengths scientists like Dr. Aykroyd went to ensuring they weren't being hoodwinked. Canada's premier paranormal investigator and Dr. Aykroyd's contemporary, Dr. Glenn Hamilton, took pains to install red lights in his seances so that photographic plates could be changed mid-proceedings and to rule out the possibility of wires being used to levitate shit. Um, Mediums, incidentally, before things began, were stripped down, their clothing closely examined, and their bodies sponged with warm water to satisfy those those present that they hadn't come prepared with some batch of homemade ectoplasm secreted somewhere on their person. Predictions and personal details offered by the spirits were exhaustively cross-referenced to nix the possibility of cold reading or random hits. Seances weren't just for entertainment purposes. I no, mean, there certainly no. were some, there, but there they was were actually them, trying to research. These were based upon what happened. Yeah, and these seances oh. were not. These seances weren't. You know, the the ones that Aykroyd took part in uh, were not for public consumption, and he did not 
right. publish them, except he tried to publish stuff in like peer reviewed journals, but they weren't sensationalist thing. Now, there were a lot of, you know, uh, spiritualists who decided to bring it into the public this way and give these really spectacular mm-hmm. public seances, you know, in theaters or invite people to these little dinner soirees and stuff. But there was uh, the, the ratio of serious scientific seances being done in that attitude versus the ones that were just being done for public entertainment is pretty skewed in favor of the scientists. And we're not, and so we only hear about the the frauds because those, of course, were the most public. But that's why Aykroyd's journals were so fascinating because this was a guy who did tons and tons, dozens of these seances in controlled settings with people he knew that were the same people over and over again, you know, and, and, um, so, which brings me to the point that while it's kind of de rigueur these days to call enthusiasts like Dr. Aykroyd naive and credit spiritualism's decline to the public becoming more savvy to fraud, in truth, the movement didn't fall off because people got wise to the handful of con artists who gave it a bad name. There are plenty of those, to be sure, and as there are in any human enterprise, but there were just as many, if not more, who aren't so easy to dismiss, and I think Walter is one of them. Fact is, the demands of modern life just aren't conducive to the spiritualist project. The time, dedication, cooperation, and patience it takes to produce measurable paranormal phenomenon just isn't something even a true believer has in ready supply these days. Four generations on, Dan Aykroyd's own mother was a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic. Yet even she... (laughs) has no rational explanation for what befell her when Dan was a woody booty baby. One evening, <laughs> as the story goes, she was watching Dan in his crib when into the nursery crept an elderly couple who she didn't recognize. Wearing outdated clothes, the pair held hands, peered gingerly into the crib, smiled at each other, and vanished. Aghast, Mrs. Aykroyd rallied the family and demanded to know what the hell had just happened. Hearing her <laughs> describe the elderly couple... Peter retrieved a scrapbook from downstairs and held up an old photograph. Amazing, Miss Aykroyd said. That's exactly who she'd seen. And the picture was of Dr. Samuel Aykroyd and his wife. Aww. Ooh. Yay! I love it! And I Man. didn't even get into his shit with UFOs. <laughs> we could do a yeah. whole episode on Aykroyd's experience. Well, he has uh, a show. He does. That talks he about, does. about that. So you uh-huh. can check that out too. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about his opinion on, he's, he, I think he's seen a UFO, no, like at least four times. Yeah. Four different yeah. times. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's something worth talking to him about then um, as well. But he is he's a different guy. He's, he's unique. Um, fascinating. I, and I that love is him. fascinating. It's fascinating too to think that, you know, we hear about these big ones and these big, you know, shows that everybody was putting on but you don't think about the ones where people were doing it privately and they were trying to get information it takes me back to the the spiritualist with the um the girl that had the other girl through her and i forget of course all of their names that mary mary yeah, 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 whatever yeah. um uh yes those oh, i did it a few weeks ago um but the spiritualist, they they continued having seances to talk to their daughter through this other girl yeah. for years, and they never published it. They never talked about it. Yeah. So it's kind of, it, you know, it's one of those things that's important to remember that people were doing it for research and not just for entertainment purposes, not just for money. Yeah, and so it's discounting. It's when money comes in that things start to get really corrupted. Yeah, dis- so. discounting. I think discounting spiritualism on account of, of some of its more spectacular frauds is kind of like discounting uh, medicine because of people like Dr. Oz. 
Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, right? and I mean, that's not, that's, I don't mean to like, you know, rake Dr. Oz across the coals, but, um, <laughs> but, but it's yeah, like just not? because he seems to have espoused some pretty crazy ideas because of, I, I suppose, money. I, I don't really know. Right. But that's yeah. not to say, but like compare him to all the doctors and research scientists diligently working on these very things that aren't hucksters, that aren't doing it to, uh, to, you know, secure advertising money or or a public right. following. And that's the thing. It's so easy to look at the frauds, and there were a few of them, and go, oh, and then the whole thing is bullshit. But in fact, like, think- there was, there's a lot of them that were. They're just not as... Uh, because they were done so diligently and done so privately, they're not as spectacular on the well, face of it. It's a private thing. It's too, a private thing. You know? So, doctor, you think about, too, go, you know, with grants. And, and science happens because of people paying for science to be discovered for the research and everything. And that comes from the government. That comes from colleges. It comes Mm -hmm. from different places. And so what spiritualism became a thing that people, you know, there's frauds determined. People don't want to associate with it. So a college isn't going to spend money Mm -hmm. on a spiritualist research or, you know, psychic research or anything like that anymore because it would give them a bad name. They don't mm-hmm. want people to know that they're doing it. The government certainly doesn't want people to know that they're they're supporting that kind of research. So when yep. you lose the money for the research, it kind of, you know, well, what yeah, do you do? and and also this 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 sort of public you know, a lot of the the research funding has a lot to do with what the public thinks about it. And scientists, you know, however well meaning, if their uh, project takes a long time and doesn't produce immediate results, it's not as flashy. It's hard to drum up public interest for it. And frankly, you know, after the Second World War, interest in spiritualism declined sharply because we had other problems to deal with. And so whether or not ghosts were real just didn't seem to be a priority for many people anymore. Perfectly understandable. But so, you know, skeptics as well as believers uh, sometimes can be in denial about, you know, the reality of what they're going through. And and it's no less true for skeptics than for people that, you know, believe in, in crazy shit, you know. But the experiences are real, but it's mm-hmm. not... Skeptics tend to discount the experience itself just because of the spin believers tend to give it sometimes because those yeah. th- that, that, that narrative doesn't kind of dovetail with their own. And it's important to remember, I mean, like spiritualism lasted for a long time, several generations uh, strong, and it's still around. It's not completely gone. I mean, people still do this kind of thing. It's kind of fallen out of favor, but but it's not gone. That's one of the one of the things I love about spiritualism so much. And and the spiritualist project, if you like, is because it's so deeply subversive, not just like not just in terms of like it's spooky and kind of great and great to undermine the status quo of the prevailing model of the universe but like yeah we we should do an episode of spiritualism at some point down the road where we talk about its political roots and its offshoots which actually did a lot of fucking good um because believing in that stuff or at least believing that researching that stuff is important seems to go hand in hand with certain uh very left-leaning uh rightly uh (laughs) correctly (laughs) left-leaning uh political uh, notions like you know democratic <laughs> uh like right. democracy and and you know uh empathy and yeah uh, you know, I, I could get into that but it's the fact that spiritualism was so uh, bound up with with the women's right movement and also with mm-hmm. with the uh, with uh, all kinds of like the new deal sh- it's really fascinating but i mean it makes sense because then right. i an idea that there's more to to reality than the material than the material world does tend to uh make a conservative view rather untenable. 
in my yeah. in my experience in terms right, of what right. a conservative view is now but you know whatever blah, 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 blah. i could talk forever about it but god i love jenna croyd and his family I love it. <laughs> should, we, should we take a quick well, uh breaky before you get into yes mr Aykroyd's hauntings grab a beverage and then continue. i shall do all, all right. right be right, right back hey guess what what it's our one and only commercial i love it's that new. i love that we only have one commercial and it's for us yeah. It's new for June. So this is for our Patreon. Uh, We're going to try to make this one shorter than last time. (laughs) (laughs) So we can get to the good Uh, shit. So we can get to the good stuff. But uh, please join our Patreon. We appreciate everyone uh, who has already joined. If uh, you can, we appreciate any support so that we can remain commercial three. Free. (laughs) Commercial free. (laughs) For free. Free. For the podcast. So that means no commercials except for this one for the podcast. Um. You guys really help us, and uh, we really, really appreciate it. We have a Discord that's available uh, depending upon the tier. You can go to patreon.com slash ghoulintentions to find out those different tiers. If you choose the Discord tier, we have two Discord chats per month. Yes. We'll have uh, – what days are those, Michael? Uh, this month, it'll be June 16th for the uh, Phantasms, correct? Or no, for for no. that's uh, sorry. June sixteenth will be the all skate, <laughs> and uh, as we like to call it, where everyone on the Discord can can uh, come and ask us questions. And uh, the one for the Phantasmas will be June thirtieth. That's uh, both times will be at seven p.m. Central Standard Time. That's and, right, and uh, it should be a blast. It should be. So uh, if you want to join the Discord chat, you have to be on one of those Discord tiers. I think they start at $8, um, but you can join several different types of tiers. So go check that out. Please support us. We appreciate everybody who is so supportive. And don't forget to continue sending your stories to ghoulintentions.com on the menu. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We're back. Are you ready for the rest of the story? I'm so fucking ready. So ready. All right, let me tell you my resources first. Oh, please do. An article by Melissa that just said Melissa <laughs> with todayifoundout.com. Cool. Which is fun. It's a fun site. And they also have a YouTube channel, which is also fun. Nice. Uh, I am not a stalker.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's dodgy. Right. And then Brent Furdyke, Furdyke with ET Canada, <laughs> as well as. Wikipedia. Of the tried and true. The tried and Wikipedia. true. Primary source. So, okay. Let's get into it. Uh, uh, we'll take a little bit about Ghostbusters at the top of it. Of course. So, noticing, noting that he is not particularly strong as a clairvoyant, Aykroyd has said that his most frequent paranormal experiences come in the form of vivid dreams of lost friends mm. and that he often feels his friend John Belushi's energy coming back. Yeah. Oh. Which is kind of cool. Oh, I love um, John Belushi. So, you know, if if anybody's a fan of the movie and has followed it, they know that this house is part of it. They know that his experiences and the stories and all of that were part of the inspiration. So before we get into the house, I want to do a little sum up of some stuff. Okay. So the idea for the film came about from, yes, his experience, but also that combined with watching the old Bowery Boys comedy Ghost Chasers. Yep, yep, yep. And having read an article on the relationship between parapsychology and quantum physics Mm -hmm. in the American Society of Psychical Research Journal. Realizing how much fun comedic ghost hunting could be, I mean, he's not wrong. (laughs) He's not. (laughs) 
Um, so he thought, let's redo one of these old ghost comedies, but let's use research that's being done today. Even at that time, there was a plausible, there was plausible research that could point to a device that could capture ectoplasm or materialization, at least visually. Yep. Yep. So the classic film we know today was a departure from Aykroyd's first draft. Uh, as the first Ghostbuster used magic wands instead of proton packs. And they traveled through time and other dimensions hunting ghosts instead of just New York City. <laughs> so that's kind of the difference there. The film's director and producer, Ivan Reitman, insisted on several changes to the original script. <laughs> and Aykroyd enlisted the help of Harold Ramis to rewrite the screenplay. Mm, mm, mm. Yes. Also, Aykroyd is spelled really fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hit on that. I had to t when I was typing it. I was typing it a lot, and it's like, God, this is so. It's A Y K R O Y D, Ackroyd. Yeah, and that there's there's like first uh, Y is so superfluous. I just don't agree with it. It's not my decision. Are, I know it's weird. If there are two Y's in any word, I feel strongly that one of at least one of them should appear at either the beginning or the end. Yeah. and these yeah. Y's are like no, they're 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 kind of. They're, yeah, they're they're dug deep in the center. And it's like, what the? Yeah. It's, why? Right. Why? And, and why? It, it's just not natural. It doesn't feel natural to type it. I'm going to say it. I'm saying it. Uh, <laughs> okay. So back to the movie. And Spellcheck doesn't know what to do with it. They're like, we, no. what no, are you trying what? to say? No. And it's like, they're as, feel as awkward about it as we do. And I get it. That's, okay. That's the, that's the word most often that comes up as an autocorrect suggestion. Awkward. 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 <laughs> yes. That's also spelled awkwardly. But it makes more sense than Ackroyd. <laughs> that's true. Okay. Uh. So although they envisioned the movie would star... Uh, Belushi, Eddie Murphy, and John Candy. Belushi's death and Eddie Murphy being busy with Beverly Hills Cop and then John Candy was also busy with something else. It resulted in a few final changes being made, which paved the way for, of course, Bill Murray to be Peter Venkman, which was the role that was originally Legend. supposed to be John Belushi. Right. Oh, yeah. So, just something to keep in mind. Um, so, if I can get my page to turn. Okay. As for any other prominent figures from the original Ghostbusters, uh, whether or not they shared Aykroyd's view on the paranormal, Aykroyd has stated, Harold Ramis was a complete non-believer, total skeptic, yeah. and agnostic full-on. Bill Murray, Billy Murray, <laughs> Billy, of Billy. course, <laughs> I love this too, Billy, of course, is Irish, and he knows ghosts exist, and sometimes the dead do linger in the land of the living. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Bill knows. The Irish know. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ivan Reitman, he's Jewish, so he knows. <laughs> There's a lot of paranormal in the Kabbalah. <laughs> he's Jewish. He it's knows. True. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and that's what's fun about Dan Aykroyd is the way he says he's like, oh, well, yeah, this is that's just how it is. Like, yeah, of course he believes in ghosts. He's true. Irish. Of course yeah. he believes in ghosts. He's Jewish. Of course he knows. <laughs> the so oh no I turned pages okay the rather famously ha haunted house Dan lived in with his wife Donna Dixon is also an inspiration for the film in fact the scene where Dan's character Ray has an entity floating over him is based on an yep. experience he had in that house so are you talking about the, the famous ghost blowjob scene Yes, yes. <laughs> so he was in bed. Why can't I have he, that kind of paranormal experience? Your paranormal, your experience is very close to actually to what he actually experienced. Oh, okay. But you you had less of a choice. <laughs> so okay, so uh, he was going to go to bed. He was laying there, and he felt something lay down beside him. 
Now, he has said before he believed it was Mama Cass because it felt like it was bigger. But in a recent interview, he said it was it actually felt masculine beca- because, I'm assuming, because of the size. So he's gone back and forth mm-hmm. who he thinks it was. Or maybe it's happened more than once. But he did feel that, like, this entity was coming on to him. Like, sexually oh. coming oh. on to him. And uh, he was very, very tired. He had a lot going on. I think that he said... Uh, I, wa- I watched him on an interview with Joe Rogan. Uh-huh. And he said that he... He thinks he was filming Dragnet or something at the time. Mm. Yeah. And he um, (laughs) was, uh, let's see, he, like any tired person, I guess, who's too tired to get it on uh, with anybody living, much less passed over. (laughs) uh, He just was like, you know what? I'm just going to become the little spoon and snuggle up and go to bed. So it's like, oh, yeah, let's get it on. It's like, mm, I'm just going to. That's what he did. And <laughs> so I think Ghost was probably like, God damn it. I know, yeah. Oh, I got the, I became the big spoon all of a sudden. It's like being uh, friend zoned. You got spoon zoned. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, he ended up like he slept really well that night. He woke up. He felt really refreshed. He wasn't scared, and he he said he felt just too tired, really, to be afraid of it. Hmm. But he did feel like it was coming on to him sexually. So in the director's cut of Ghostbusters, which you don't see, is the belt buckle coming out down and, and his pants coming out yeah. down. That's yeah. one of the things that you don't see. But that's in there because of what he felt like. I, and see, I remember was... seeing that scene in the theatrical release. Like a oh, see, really? Seeing, seeing the belt buckle come undone. I mean, it may, I could be misremembering, but to me, that scene has yeah. always had that detail in it. Yeah, I remember it too, but he said it was the director's cut, so. I don't know that I ever I saw it. Maybe. Well, I, mean, it, I, I, don't, I don't know, yeah. Who knows? I'd have to watch it again. Anyway, yeah. um, other experiences he had in the house were the jewelry moving around on its own. He, he and his family saw shadow figures. The Stairmaster would turn on by itself. They would feel a hand on their shoulders now and again. And at one point, his daughter saw a younger man walking down the hallway with a little girl with red hair. So two spirits. So his daughter saw two spirits. At least two. And there is a rumor that he said that there is a guy who died in the house of a drug overdose. And I guess they didn't want to get caught or whatever. And he ended up being buried in the hills because the house is in the Hollywood Hills. Huh. So... Uh, they believe that his spirit is haunting the house as well as some mm. others. Uh, there is quite a history to this house as well. Before Dan moved in, other notable celebrities that lived there were Natalie Wood, Ringo Starr, mm. Alfre Woodard, mm. and Mama Cass Elliot, who is someone we're going to talk about. For I a love bit. Mama Cass. I know we have a lot of younger listeners that don't know who Mama Cass is. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Mama Cass is from the musical group The Mamas and the Papas, which was an American folk rock group. Folk rock, rock, folk. Folk rock folk group. Folk rock group. Folksy rock um, group or a rocky folk group. They sang songs and stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they recorded and performed from 1965 to 1968, which I didn't realize until I was looking it up that it was only three or four years yeah, that, they, yeah. that they did. They didn't last uh, very the long. The group, 
And it's surprising because the group was a defining force in the music scene of, and the counterculture scene of the 1960s into the 1970s. But you would be surprised looking into it how many of the really classic groups weren't around that long. Around very long. Yeah, Even they, the Beatles they weren't just around, yeah, weren't they very just long. made a huge impact, but they didn't. Their careers didn't span very many years. Yeah, something in the stars must have come together mm-hmm. at that time yeah. and just cre- like created magic. Because I think so. And they also had the, the Mamas and the Papas had their huge hit Monday Monday. Uh, Monday, Monday, and California Dreamin'. And California Dreamin'. And yeah, yeah, the two really big hits. Mm-hmm. And they're such great songs. Oh, yes, they're such yes. great songs. And um, and Mama Cass is known for her vocals on those two particular st- songs. So the biggest songs that they had are also the ones that she sang um, most of it on. That's what she's known for is yeah. those vocals. She uh, is is pretty, she was a pretty spectacular vocalist. Oh, she was phenomenal. Um, the yeah, the Mamas and the Papas released five studio albums in those three, four years and 17 singles, hmm. six of which made Billboard Top 10 and have sold close to 40 million records wor- worldwide. Wow. So they were a big deal. They were, they were a fucking and, big thing, yeah. Yeah, and Mama Cass was a big deal within them. Mm-hmm. She was known for her sense of humor and optimism and was considered by many to be the most char- charismatic member of the group. Mm. Her powerful, distinctive voice was a major factor in their success. For example, California Dreamin', Monday, Monday. There was also Words of Love and then her solo cover of Dream a Little Dream of Me. And the reason that's noteworthy is because the song was written as a dance song. And... Um, and so a lot of the covers of the, the song are much poppier and more upbeat. Yeah, yeah but they get that swing rhythm going. she did the cover when they found out that the co-writer had passed away. So they found out the co-writer had passed away, and then she did a cover that's much more contemplative oh. and deeper. Mm. And it's just a different way of looking at it. Oh, that's so and great. And it really struck people. It's a really, really cool version. You should definitely listen to it yeah, if you haven't. please. Please, um, guys, really do so, yourself a favor. Yeah, so she's just, she was pretty great. Um, She was well-loved in the music industry and by fans. There's this really great story, though, of her getting detained in London because they said that she stole um, sheets from the place, the apartment she was staying in. (laughs) And so she got arrested for stealing sheets, and she denied it and said, I didn't steal the fucking sheets. And so just they, like, had to cancel part of the tour. (laughs) It was a big deal. And the charges were dropped because they didn't have any evidence. So they kept going. Well, like, I think they were recording at the Palladium or something like that. And she was like, there were two sheets that I really liked. So I took them. (laughs) 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 I loved it. I was like, that's amazing. So she had stolen the sheets. Um, She had a, a child, too, that she never said who was the father was. And she the the daughter found out later who her dad was, and he was a guitarist that had played with them for mm. for years. And so, um, anyway, to talk about that, like, she was she was well-loved, and she had quite a bit of, uh, of let's say... Charisma? People she talked... She, she, she was rubbing elbows with some cool people. Let's yeah, say that. she really was. So, on her house, on the, in this house, on uh, there was a wall that she called the graffiti wall, and she would have people sign it. People like Eric Clapton, hmm. Ryan O'Neill, hmm. who at the time was huge, David Crosby, hmm. Don Johnson, also at the time was huge. Yep. Um, and in fact, on the night she died, it was believed at the time that she had gone from her show 
to her hotel room. Mm -hmm. But Debbie Reynolds, in her book in 2013, said that she had seen her at a Mick Jagger's house, at a party at Mick Jagger's house Mm -hmm. that she had gone to with her kids, Carrie Fisher and uh, Todd Fisher. Ah! It's like she's just swimming in a sea of famous people. I love it. I um, love it. Which gives you kind of an idea of where she would have gone mm-hmm. had she still yeah. been around. I mean, she was still uh, uh, she still made like uh, she was popular enough in that brief span that we had her. That I mean, she appeared uh, in a television show, several television shows. Mm-hmm. She even appeared. She was animated in, in a Scooby Doo episode, and she voiced herself. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, she was just really she was just really a cool chick. She was. Um, now, okay, so an often repeated urban legend is that she choked to death on a ham sandwich. Yeah, and it's bullshit. That's bullshit. Mama Cass was not a small woman. She was a larger woman. She had some heft to her. She did. And as we know, there are a lot of biases about people who are not thin. Basically, what happened is the doctor, the first doctor on the scene, they hadn't done the autopsy or anything, but the media was there and they were asking what he thought. And they just were kind of guesstimating what could have happened. And apparently there was a half-eaten sandwich on her uh, tray, a room service tray, and someone brought up the idea that maybe she had choked on the sandwich. The only reason they ever would have brought that up is because of her size. And the media just fucking went with it. It's not what what caused it. What caused it was a heart attack. She had a heart attack in her sleep. That's Mm -hmm. how she died. Um, she w- it was 1974. She was only 32 years old. Ugh. So she was young. Now, again, she was a larger woman, but she also did all of the drugs. <laughs> like, oh, so many drugs. <laughs> I uh, mean, it was the time. You couldn't be the in time. the music industry and not be fucked up every chance you got. It was just it was the way the things were. If we were there, we would have been just drugging. as fucked up. It was. Um, yeah. Open your mind. The best way I can think to put it is David Crosby talked about it. They got high together. Can you imagine getting high with Mama Cass? What a fucking dream. Yeah. But we all know David Crosby is. that He was real high. All <laughs> and they, <laughs> well, I mean. Yeah, 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 I mean, sure. So there was a lot of drugs happening as well. It was the scene. It's diff- It's hard on the heart, is what I'm saying. Yeah, so yeah. she did not choke on a sandwich. If anybody says that, it's bullshit, and it's based on a bias that was really hateful at the time. Um, they should have They should have done better by her. They really so, should have. Um, and the fact that some people still believe that shit is a testament to, yeah. like, it's so fucking stupid. Guys, come yep. on. Like, yeah. ugh. Anyway, sorry. Uh, sorry. So, okay. She deserved so, better. Yes, she did. Absolutely. And it's believed that she is one of the spirits because she lived in the house. Um, she threw parties in the house. The, you know, it was um, it was the who's who scene mm. for, you know, that counterculture movement. People would come over and play music. She, you know, all kinds of parties and stuff like that. Um, so it, it makes sense that she would go back to where she was hosting parties for her friends. She was Mama Cass. She was kind of that figure mm-hmm. for everybody and it makes sense that she would return to this house to maintain that yeah i guess yeah energy so the house is 4828 square feet Ooh. it's not tiny <laughs> um it was originally built in 1951 and is located like i said in the hollywood hills it has five bedrooms five and a half baths a master bedroom with an attached office and weight room a library Six fireplaces in L.A., (laughs) over one acre of land, 
a pool and a motor court. You can't see it from the street or anything, Joe, just so you know. You can drive by and be like, there's a gate. Um, <laughs> so it's very, very private as well, yeah. which is probably very nice. Yeah, um, sounds delicious. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, Dan and Donna sold the house. So they lived there. They had all of these experiences, and they sold the house to Beverly D'Angelo. Uh, and they had to sign a clause, which Dan gets into this a lot, that they had to sign a clause that stated they knew that there was something unnatural in the house and that California law requires that. Yep. He talks about it a lot. And for him, it's evidence that people know there's got to be something. Otherwise, well, why would they have to dis- disclose it? Right. 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 Mm-hmm. So, also, I mean, there are Dan is just the sort of person that. that takes that stuff with with, uh, with utter seriousness. So he's like, "Look, I'm not I'm not going to be the guy that pretends this isn't real because I believe in it. So I'm going to be true to my beliefs and tell the person buying right. this house, look, I think shit's happening here, which is just yeah. an honorable fucking thing to do. It is. It's true. Um, so, and uh, according to the interview, an interview I saw with him, uh, she still lived there as of 2019. Doesn't mean she doesn't rent it out here and there, but yeah. Uh, and Beverly D'Angelo, for those of you who don't know, she's been in tons of stuff. I'm she's getting really into big. it. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I was thinking sure people because I love Beverly D'Angelo too. Yeah, I do too. I do too. So I mean, we're talking about Chevy Chase. So she started with Chevy Chase mm-hmm. and then National Lampoon's movies. Um, yeah, she played the she did the, the Griswold some, wife. Uh, the what? She played the wife of uh, uh, Jeff Chase's wife yes, in those movies. Yes, yeah. she, she started off as a singer in Hollywood, and so she did a few popular f- musical films like Hair, mm-hmm. Coal Miner's Daughter. She was in those, and then she was in the mom, the mom in the National Lampoon's movies in the eighties. She was also in Entourage, so she's she's yep. had quite a career. Yep. Um, one of my favorites is in season three, episode eight. Of celebrity ghost story. Uh-huh. Yes. Where she talked about her experience with the house. So this is her story from her mouth. Yes. All right. So in 2008, she and her two young children moved in to the house after purchasing it. Uh, those two children's daddy was Al Pacino, by the way. Just want to drop that bomb. Okay. <laughs> she felt, I know, I can't not. Like, I have I to it. say that. I love it. Uh, she f- said she felt immediately at home there. It did take her a couple of months to get ready for the move. She bought, ended up buying the house as is. It was too expensive initially. So uh, they, and she knew Dan and Donna. So she called them and was like, hey, What's what can we work them out? And they were like, if you we if you want to buy it as is and do repairs and stuff yourself, we'll sell it to you for I think three point eight million or something like that. I can't remember exactly how much she paid for it. Hmm. But um so she agreed to do that, did some construction stuff. And what she would do is uh, start to move in. She would gradually start to move some stuff and go over there to oversee the construction. So she was over there. A lot. Yeah. And one night, it was getting kind of late, so she decided to stay the night there by herself. Overall, she was having a good time. Now, I think I think she had twins. I think those were her kids. She has twins. Mm. And so I'm thinking she probably was like, ooh, it's so quiet in here. There's no children screaming. This is the best. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, she was just, you know, hanging out. And she did think to herself, you know, the only thing that would make this better would be some great music just to hang out to. So she goes into the kitchen to get a bottle of water from the fridge, and she hears this, like, click, whir sound, like, click. Mm. And she's like, what is that? So she looks over, and there was one of those CD players that was attached to the underside of uh, cabinets in the kitchen. Yeah, I remember those. How those are used to be TVs that would flip down and stuff like that. Yeah. And she didn't even know it was there. She'd never noticed it before, but it had turned on. 
So that's what she was hearing. And the, I think the CD, start, the whir was the CD turning on. Mm. So she goes over and pushes play. And all of a sudden, there's this great rock music that she didn't know that what she needed in her life. And she was like, <laughs> this is fantastic. I love it here. Yes. You know, and at the time, she was just like, this is, this is the car, this is, you know, the universe telling me, I guess, this, that I'm supposed to be here. She didn't think anything of it, really. She just went about the rest of her night and had a great time. But then, fast forward to when she actually moved in, she noticed, first of all, that there was a hot spot on the stairs. And mm. I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to explain it. So she said that uh, it was just for some reason on the, the landing up the stairs, there was a hot spot there. And she could never figure it out. The AC was on. There was no heat on, but there was always a hot spot right there on the stairs. I can explain that. <laughs> I also have stairs with a landing. I have two air conditioning units. One does my downstairs and one does my upstairs. Where they don't meet is right there in the middle of the stairway. It is always warm right in the middle of that stairway when it's warm outside. And there's nothing we can do about it. So, But your house is also haunted, Jamie. <laughs> that's true. But I don't think that that is part of it. I think that's just the air is designed to flow mm. a certain way. And yeah, up the true. stairs and down the stairs is not that. It's not a priority for the airflow. Airflow is is tricky. It's a tricky business. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, then a little bit later, uh, she had a couple of friends over. So, okay, they're hanging out. One of the friends, he goes to the restroom, and he comes back, and he's all white in the face and ashen, and he doesn't, you know, he looks spooked. And she's like, what What happened? You know, are you okay? And he said he'd gone to the bathroom, and while he was in there, the light just turned off on him. And it freaked him out. And so he comes out and, you know, tells her everything. Well, then her other friend, she, well, she decides, okay, I'm going to go check it out and see what's going on. She goes in. She figured one of the lights had burst or something, you know, just blown. Mm-hmm. And she was going to have to replace the light bulb. So she goes in, light switches on, the light bulb is on, there's nothing wrong. Huh. Weird. Huh. So then the other friend goes in and she's in there and the same thing happens to her. So then her friends are freaking out. Which I'm like, these friends had to have been actors to freak out about that. Like, come on, that's a lifetime. Like, is that, right. Really? Is that what right. I'm bringing out about? So she's having to comfort them. I can't them. find my mark. Right. It's like, the light was supposed to be on. I can't get into the light if there is no light. Um, so, yeah, I assume they were actors. But, <laughs> again, we can say that because we are actors. Uh, this, this is true. So, yeah. So that happened, which also weird. Later... She was lying in bed, and on the mantel, so there's a fireplace in the master bedroom. She was laying in there, and she had a few little items on that mantelpiece, and she heard some noise, and she said she has a hard time falling asleep uh, because she was a singer. She would sing in the middle of the night, so she has a hard time just sleeping at normal times. Right. And so she uh, heard some skittering, like, on the mantelpiece, and she went over to the mantelpiece and saw her jewelry moving on its own. Not just like Ooh. falling off gently because it was set on the edge, but like, but like it was on the rifled, right side. Like being rifled and, through by an invisible hand. Even more than that. Like it was on the right side of the mantelpiece and it lifted up and moved <gasps> to the left side. Ooh. Like right in front of her face. Yeah. So it was like, ooh, well. In my movie, that's Mama Cass going, picking up, going, oh, that's nice. And then just putting it down that's in a different nice. place. Like, that's, oh, that's, ooh, ooh, what that's, about this one? Ooh, that's a good so, cut. <laughs> that's one of the same things that Dana Aykroyd experienced. Was jewelry being moved in the house. Like they would see it move on uh, dresser tops and stuff like that. So, uh, Mama Cass was a bit of a hippie. So I wonder if, like, 
she was doing that kind of a feng shui thing, like jewels and gems have a certain, you know, uh, power to them, according to some people, especially people that are more hippy-dippy. And so maybe Mama yeah. Cass was like, no, no, this ruby needs to go over here, darling, because that's a west wall. I could just even but have a, I just It I, could be a, what about the little girl with the red hair? The little girl, yeah, could be, could be too, yeah. Sparkles, I don't know, I don't know. So, um... At that point, Beverly was like, what the fuck? So she calls Donna to talk to Donna about it. Um, and she asked about what was going on. And Donna was like, well, yeah, it's haunted. Now, this is where the story is kind of like, it was like she signed it in the contract. They had to put in the contract that there was unusual happenings. So maybe the timeline is a little mixed up, or maybe Beverly did not read her contract. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, because she bought it as is. Maybe she didn't look at any of that stuff. Yeah. So they had the conversation about the house. And Donna told her they'd also experienced water turning on and off, lights turning on and on. It was just understood that the house was haunted. Mm. But, Donna said, don't worry. We haven't had a physical manifestation since 83. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> I love it. That's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> it's fine. We haven't had. So uh, haven't another night, <laughs> fast forward, different night. She's trying to drift off to sleep again, and she heard music playing in the house. She was like, what is going on? Who is playing music? So she gets up, walks around the house, and cannot find the source of the music. It's just on somewhere. Huh. Oh. Yeah. So she stops and she's like, <laughs> I love this. She so just much. shouts out, Will you stop? And the music turned off. <laughs> and that's when she was like, Oh, okay. So it listens to me, it, it's aware of <laughs> it's, me. It's a polite ghost, it's a respectful ghost. And that's ghost. when she started thinking it was Mama Cass as mm. well. And she started putting together the music scene and all of that stuff. Um, so she believes that Mama Cass is definitely still in the house mm. based mm. upon her experiences. So that's fused her experiences. What I was not expecting is the uh, singer Robbie Williams. Oh, yeah. Rent he, he rented the house for a while. Oh. And he also believes Mama Cass is in the house. All right. I mean, uh -huh. that's yeah. pretty fucking awesome. The ghost right. of Cass so Elliot in the house. I love I it. I know. So... Here's what he said. He rented the house for a few months. Um, I think it was before Beverly moved in, but I'm not sure. But I think it was. Um, and because it took the Ackroyds a while to sell it. Uh, and they put yeah. it up for rent for a while. And so they just had a hard time selling it for a while. Um, Those big houses are hard to sell because they, 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 they appeal to a very limited market. Yeah, right. A limited market that can buy a... $4 million house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right? At that time, right? Yeah. Or I guess it was only like five years ago or something. Or no, 11 years ago. So 12 years ago. I'm not doing math. I'm not. Don't make me do math. I'm not doing And this it. is why okay. you're not a millionaire. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> I've already spent like three of those years on something cute. So, okay. He, Robbie Williams was... Uh, on Joe Wood's podcast, Alien Nation. And so he did an interview with her, and he said that when he rented, he knew that the place was completely and utterly haunted. When the group's hit, California Dreamin' was played, when the Mamas and the Papas, California Dreamin' was played on a TV show he was watching in the house, uh -huh. he said the entire atmosphere in the home 
changed, Aww. resulting in, as he said, a silence I've never experienced before or since. Oh, I wonder According if that's to, reflective uh, of like Mama Cass yeah. hearing the song and just like the memories it must bring back for her. I know, I, mean, like, oh, I know. And imagine? according to him, and only adding to this fucking mystery, Williams said that he discussed his experience with Zach Starkey, who is Ringo Starr's son. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I'm... He lived in the house as a child when Ringo Starr owned the house. Ah. Right. This house has when... uh, been in some... Some uh, in has, the hands of some entertainment royalty. Absolutely. So when Starkey learned where Williams was staying, he asked, I hear you're at the old house. Have you met the kids yet? We used to play with them when we were little. <gasps> in fact, when Robbie Williams tried to leave, the hires, the workers he had hired to help him move refused to go inside after seeing the old lady sitting in the chair. Wow. I know. So like this house is just like a hot spot. Like it's just, it's like a, uh -huh. it's like a Greyhound bus station for ghosts and Mama Cass is yeah. just one of them. Yep. Wow. It seems to be. Wow. It seems to be. You yeah. know, crazy to think of, but Mama Cass, she was born in 1941, Cass Elliot. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and she would be 79 today. Not today, mm -hmm. but like if she were still around, she'd be 79. So yeah. she could very well still be with us if she hadn't been taken so soon. Right, right. Sad to think about. Yeah. Oh, God, the things she could That's have accomplished. That's a house. It's pretty active. It's a pretty active house yeah. based upon these, you know, these uh. stories. So, And you know what? I'm really glad we did this. A, fa a fact that uh, something that I think contributes to it being so active is that it's it's past hands among musicians and artists, you know, people that mm -hmm. tend to be more sensitive to that kind of thing. Um, yep. Also better at storytelling. So when things happen, they're more, they're, uh, they're a little better at sharing it. Um, That's true. A lot of people, uh, including people we know, may have weird experiences, but they tend to dismiss it in direct proportion to their ability to craft a narrative out of it. And so if they yeah. can't, if like, I don't know how to explain it, so I just, whatever, it didn't happen. Uh, but like artists, storytellers, musicians, one, they're a little more sensitive to that kind of thing in the first place because we tend to get our inspiration from elsewhere anyway. We don't always know where, but it's very real for us. But mm -hmm. we're also able to tell a good story. So we kind of lock in on those experiences. We're like, this is fucking cool. This totally happened. Let me tell you all about it. Yeah, right. And maybe right. we embellish sometimes. But embellishment, you know, whatever. Just giving a... <laughs> just a little... <laughs> I don't embellish. Yes. I don't really. I, I don't... I, yeah. I, I, I emphasize. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, I think it has a lot um, to do with, you know, I mean, Mama Cass and the other spirits there must feel pretty good that uh, the people that have owned that house... Uh, pretty regularly seem to be the people that are like, oh, yep, hey, you're here, cool. Oh, definitely. It's going to be very lonely for a ghost to reside in a place where the people just don't believe in your shit. Right, yeah. So it's like being in a bad relationship. <laughs> right. And you're like, you're of not course. listening. <laughs> yeah, never listening. So, yeah, it's just, I find it, I find that that's really fascinating that, you know, the combination of all of these things is what brought us Ghostbusters and yeah. real experiences yes. made this happen. And it's one of the <sighs> most beloved movies ever. Oh, for good reason. Yeah, it's so. so fucking great. It's so funny. Yeah. It's so funny. There was an interview, um, uh, I think it's called QT or Q, I forget the name of the show, but back in 2000, 
uh, 10 or 11, right after uh, Peter Ackroyd's book, The History of Ghosts, came out. He and Dan, son Dan, were uh, uh, doing an interview. And of course, they talked about ghosts and, and UFOs and all that stuff. But they talked about Ghostbusters. And it's like um, the interviewer at some point brings up the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man finale, which, of course, is one of the funniest fucking uses mm-hmm. of a visual gag ever done in the history of film. And on paper, there's no way it should work. But it does. No. And um, yeah. And it was funny because Dan was talking about, yeah, when I was writing the script, I was kind of, you know, shooting it back to dad and being like, what do you think about this? Does this kind of, you know, hold up to the science of what we know and all this? And the dad, you know, Peter was like, oh, yes, yes. But Peter was not a fan of the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man uh, yeah, scene. And, 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 too, in yeah. interview, and in an interview, Dan is like saying, but it's an evil thought form. It's like, you know, it, they, those are real. <laughs> and his dad goes, yeah, well, that's true. And to be fair, he finally says, and I'm paraphrasing, he's like, and when, you know, when you see it on screen, it works. It completely works. So I was wrong about yeah. that, he said. And it's just so nice to see Dan kind of beam going, oh, dad liked my movie. <laughs> he liked it. He thought it was okay. Yeah. yeah. It was cute. It's also but telling. that's the story. That's the. In the in the same interview, incidentally, a little side note, oh. just because it speaks to, to Peter Aykroyd's uh, uh, view on the paranormal. The interview asks him, did you wait to write this book until after you were retired because you were afraid of the stigma attached to spiritualism and, and paranormal uh, research. And he very flatly says, no, there was never a stigma uh, attached to it for me. This was just part of everyday life and I couldn't fathom people that, that were unable to take it seriously. So he's like, I just waited until after it was retired because one, that's when I found grandfather's diaries or journals and two, you know, I had the time. But he's like, I've yeah. never, he's like, I've never ever seen a stigma attached to it and I hope to pass that on to my children. And, and Dan's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is just a fact of life. And, yeah. uh, and Dan himself says, you know, hey, and the fact is ghosts are just entertaining <laughs> yeah they're so entertaining and fucking true that ah long yeah. live the acroids both the here and in the afterlife <laughs> yeah. yeah yes 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 well thank you jamie for sharing that really awesome story thank you for sharing your awesome story. i hope people go That's and listen to the mamas and the papas after this because they are a group that really yeah, that really deserves great. a resurgence they've never truly gone away i mean their stuff is still played all the time mm-hmm. and finds its way in film uh, and tv a lot but man you young you youngins out there treat yourself their, their shit is good their shit is so good and mama cast was a powerhouse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so <sighs> uh thank you guys yes thank you for listening um and uh, I guess that's all I've got. Ghoulintentions.com. Uh, send us your stories. Yes, please. And that's all. Stay safe. Stay sane. And remember, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.